Daredevil 101 begins and it's a whole new beginning for The Man Without Fear as Kevin Smith and Joe Quesada reboot the series with a new first issue. Welcome to episode 50 of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. I am your host, J. David Weeder, but you friends could call me Dave. For those of you new to the show, coming in because of the Netflix Daredevil series or what have you because of the series I'm beginning here, welcome to give you an overview. I am a big Daredevil fan. Every week I pull a new Daredevil comic, I give you the breakdown, and I give you the analysis and running commentary on that comic book. As stated, this is the 50th episode, which is a milestone in itself, I guess. But it is also the beginning of Daredevil 101, a series of first issues for the man without fear. A bit of a primer for the new or lapsed Daredevil fan coming back to fandom, or just looking for a place to start with the man without fear in comics. This week we've got a great first issue from 1998. There are a couple of omissions from these episodes that I would like to point out right at the front. If you go to your local comic shop looking for a place to start with Daredevil, most retailers are going to tell you to start with Man Without Fear. And especially if it's springboarding off of the Netflix series, since that's where most of that material was drawn from. I don't dissuade you from this. I'm not covering it here because I already covered it. That was episodes 10 through 14 of the series. If you want to put in the time, definitely dig those episodes up. Pretty easy to track down on iTunes or whatever RSS feed reader you are using. The other omission would be the original first issue of Daredevil. Again, I covered that in the very first episode of this show. Seemed like a natural starting point. So if you want to scroll down the iTunes list or just the feed list, it's the very first one there. Very easy to find. Both of those would be recommended listening, but I know a lot of people are going to be looking for more contemporary starting points. Not all of the comics that I'm going to be offering in this five-part series are going to be the best starting point. But again, I'm also talking to lapsed readers. People who read Daredevil in the past fell off the wagon and found that interest revived. So I'm trying to hit two audiences. I am expecting a few new listeners, so I'm trying to cater to them. So if you're a longtime listener to the show, if I repeat information, forgive me. But I do want to make this accessible to new and lapsed Daredevil fans. We all know the simple premise. Matt Murdock was the son of boxer Jack Murdock. Got blinded in an accident, which gave him great abilities to see, hear, touch and sensed the world around him, but the price was it took away his sight. After the murder of Jack Murdock, Daredevil put on a costume, avenged his father, and continues to protect New York and Hell's Kitchen specifically as Daredevil, while working tirelessly as a blind lawyer by day. So that's about as much backstory as we're going to work with up front. Again, I'll be commenting as I go. Now, of course, with Daredevil 101, I am going to be giving away a free digital copy of this week's issue. To put your name in the hat, just share the episode post. Share it on Facebook, Twitter. If you have it on your own blog, let me know. 
I will put your name in the drawing, and on Wednesday I will pick the winner, I will contact them, and you will receive a free digital copy via Comixology of this week's issue, which is Daredevil number one. Now one thing I will mention is, if you already have the issue and you want to pass it on to somebody else, I'll need their email. Just let me know if you want to share the issue. The more the merrier. I'm always out to make new Daredevil fans. That's not the primary mission of this show, but you know what? With these episodes, I want to open the doors and be as welcoming as I can to new or lapsed Daredevil fans. So with all that preamble out of the way, I'm going to play a quick podcast promo. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Daredevil number one from 1998. In 1939, Timely Comics published its first issues. It later changed its name, first to Atlas Comics and then to Marvel Comics. In 2014, Marvel polled its fans asking for the 75 greatest Marvel stories from those 75 years and published that list in print form. The unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels countdown will walk through all 75 of these stories every Wednesday from December 31, 2014 to June 1, 2016. Join me, Blaine Dowler, and a cadre of other hosts, including established podcasting greats and emerging talents, as we run through the list, discuss each story in the context of its original release, and determine just what makes it so great. The unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown can be found at Bureau42.com, on iTunes, and on Stitcher. And we are back. So to set the stage for this week's issue... Daredevil had been running since 1964. Through the 90s, the sales on the monthly Daredevil comic had been coasting for most of that decade. There are a few spikes here and there based on storylines, but overall, never one to really break records. At the same time, Marvel was really ready to spice their books up. They wanted to reinvigorate some of their line, bring it into what was about to be the 21st century. So they sought out indie creators and sometime Marvel artists, Joe Quezada and Jimmy Palmiotti, to do what they called a research and development style line of books. Mostly second tier, things that could be reimagined without really damaging the infrastructure of the Marvel Universe at that time. The books were The Inhumans, Black Panther, The Punisher, Doctor Strange, and of course, Daredevil. The important thing to note is this was not a Heroes Reborn Square One relaunch. More of a renumbering, a reimagining. Continuity still counted. This was still an ongoing piece of the Marvel Universe. The history was still there. And Daredevil was the first product of this initiative. So with Daredevil number 380, the original series ended. The following month, the new series began. Kazada and Palmiotti would take over art chores, but for a writer, they sought out an out-of-the-box choice. Filmmaker Kevin Smith. At that time, Smith was not a podcaster. He was known for his critically acclaimed indie movie, Clerks. Mallrats followed that up, which was a mixed bag of reviews. And then the critically acclaimed Chasing Amy, as well as his most recent movie at the time, Dogma. This choice brought a lot of eyes to the book, because Kevin Smith carries with him a large fandom, which is why he now does spoken word tours and a huge podcast network. The thing is, with me at this stage... This was part of my gradual re-entry into full-time comic collecting. My roommate was the first one to start collecting the Daredevil books. I didn't have enough money for it. I was poor. But he began picking them up. This would have been well past the storyline we're talking about this week. But it gave me the chance to read them. And I felt that reinvigoration. I felt the excitement of this series and what it really meant to just turn something on its ear and do something different with it. I remember my roommate and I just discussing these books 
well into the morning hours and how much we like Daredevil and just how good this relaunch really was. So does it hold up? I'm not sure. That's what we're going to talk about. So the first product, as I mentioned, was Daredevil number one, and it was released under the banner called Marvel Knights. Again, that's an R&D section of Marvel proper. It was released with a cover date of November 1998. It has two variant covers. The main cover, the more familiar cover, just brings me warm fuzzies all over. Because of that excitement, because of the reinvigoration that I had for this character in comics as a whole, the cover shows Daredevil plummeting upside down through the air, his face in shadow, while throwing his trademark billy club. The club's line zips around him like a crazy roller coaster track, as the city below is rendered in a simple sepia tone. As mentioned, I can't look at this cover and not remember that excitement. It's excitement that's rarely revisited. Very few relaunches have really engaged me the way this one did. Now, let me tell you up front that as I go into critical analysis, that sentimental value is not necessarily going to color my opinion. But again, this cover gives me warm fuzzies. I'm not going to deny that. It's a great idea. It's a simple poster-style shot of the main character. The Billy Club line, again, is all over the place, which there's no logic to that at all. It's style over substance, but darn it, it works. It looks fresh. It's a dynamic pose, which was aped by the 2003 movie. Daredevil's face is in shadow, giving him a mystique. It still holds up. I still get excited when I see this, just because of how much energy this put back into Daredevil. The second cover is much like the regular cover. Daredevil's face is shrouded in shadow. His billy club is thrown, with the crazy zigzagging line everywhere. But in this instance, Daredevil lunges at the reader in a darkened alleyway. Now, as much as I love the first cover, I find this one more exciting. It's an action shot, which makes a big, big difference. It also has a context. With the first cover, Daredevil's plummeting, he's falling, and basically his billy club is coming at the reader. The only complaint I have on the second cover, though, is that it's somewhat derivative of the, the other cover. I mean, you could give the same description to both, and then send an artist out to draw it. These could be two interpretations of the same description. Now, there is a third cover. But all this is is basically a black and white rendering of the original cover. I will comment on this just briefly because the original cover looks sharper. The strength of the colors in the original cover show on this black and white version. Plus some of the computer touch-ups like the gleam on Daredevil's Billy Club. The art itself is not bad, but the sepia tone background, the blood red colors, the digital flares, they just really set this one apart. So getting into the story itself. The story is entitled, And a Child Shall Lead Them All. Now, the title itself is based on Isaiah 11.6 from the Bible, which speaks of a coming kingdom with a righteous leader that will allow peace. Beasts will live in harmony with one another. It's basically referencing the second coming. The story inside was written by Kevin Smith, penciled by Joe Cazada, inked by Jimmy Palmiotti, lettered by Liz Agrafiotis, and colored by Dan Kemp. If you're seeking this out in the stores, of course, it's available digitally. It's on Marvel Digital, Comixology, and Digital Unlimited. But if you're looking for a physical copy, it is reprinted as the Daredevil Volume 1 trade paperback, which was the original printing, Daredevil Visionaries Kevin Smith trade paperback, there's a hardcover of Volume 1 as well, and then a Guardian Devil paperback. All are recommended. So to break down the first part of the story, Matt Murdock lays restlessly in his bed pondering the letter his lady love, Karen Page, left him as she left him. Yeah, get it? Meanwhile, across New York, a maternity ward is quietly invaded while the nursing staff is on break, and when the nurse returns, she finds a tragic massacre has occurred. As the sun rises the following morning and the Daily Bugle, bearing the news of the maternity ward tragedy hits stands, a young girl named Gwyneth flees from a carload of men with a baby in her arms. 
In a confession booth at a nearby church, Matt hears Gwyneth's elevated heart rate. Though he tries to concentrate on explaining his crisis of faith to the priest, he ends up ducking out and leaping into action in his crimson tights. Daredevil arrives on the scene just as the car is gaining on Gwyneth and bursts his hand through the windshield, grabbing the driver's shirt collar, causing the car to wreck right into a fire hydrant. But once the action settles, Daredevil is left in the torrent of the fire hydrant with the police arriving at the scene. Gwyneth has disappeared. So Daredevil's going to have a hard time explaining the destruction of city property. Let's take just a moment to talk about these pages. The first two pages of the book are text. Lots and lots of text. Handwritten and hard to read. Which is annoying. But if you manage through it, it's a Dear John letter from Karen. This is contraposted against, really, a single image. And it works. It's Matt Forlorn laying in bed. A pillow from his massive stack lays on the floor, which was something that stood out quite a bit for me. A, not only does Matt have a ton of pillows. B, this one on the floor, it made me think that he put it there because he thinks it's Karen's. Just as one of those weird, knee-jerk emotional reactions we all have. We all do weird things when it comes to emotions. And I thought that detail in the art was very well done, very understated. And I sat there for a long time trying to define what it was I was seeing. Not that it didn't convey the image, but really the symbolic nature of it. So who's Karen Page? Well, Karen Page, along with Foggy Nelson, was introduced in Daredevil number one. Karen was Matt's secretary. And there was a very will they, won't they type of thing going on for many, many, many years. Karen eventually left New York when the setting was set to Won't They, and then she eventually, while pursuing to be an actress, fell on hard times. I'm not going to go into the details of that, but she definitely fell on hard, hard times. <laughs> and she returned into Matt's life, and, you know, up to the end of the previous series, Karen had actually kind of gotten her life together. And the relationship between Matt and Karen would, well, it was more stable. It was never meant to be stable. By design, it would never be stable, because that would be boring. And Karen had been working as the late-night DJ on a radio station owned by Fisk, and she was known as the Angel of the Night. She was at that time, especially through the Carl Kiesel series, which I would highly recommend, but not as a beginning point, she was actually Matt's eyes and ears on the city. Because she would get news coming through the wire and say it over the radio, so Matt's enhanced senses would pick it up. It was such a cool dynamic, and I liked that a lot. But as we open the series, of course, Karen has left. Matt is really depressed because of this, because again, that relationship had become stable and good. So we go from a little bit of melodrama to, holy shit, a maternity ward massacre. Now it's done as tastefully as something like this can be done and as subtly, but it is very, very dark, very edgy, and to be honest with you, very traumatic. To the point that as many times as I have read this issue, I always block out, apparently, that this happens. Or part of me wonders if I ever really put it together. Because it ends up being a surprise each time. Now, of course, we're already getting the hints that this is part of a bigger conspiracy that's going to play out over the subsequent seven issues. Because this storyline ran through Daredevil number one through number eight. Making this even more traumatic is that the art, the panels, are not just set up against a blank background. The panels themselves are small, so we get a full background. The background looks like an etching of some sort. Something you would see in a very old book or a very old Bible. And it lends an extremely otherworldly quality to this scene. It's something that's being used here that's going to be used throughout the book and throughout the series to great effect. It's a subtle way of saying that there are bigger things at work here. And it leaves it up to the reader to decide what those bigger things are. Are they supernatural or are they villainous? And I'm not going to spoil that. And you know, on that note, the thing about Kazada is I've never been a fan. Again, as I mentioned, it's not my taste, but it's not off-putting either. 
However, even though I don't find it inviting, I find it at times vibrant. You know, there are other times where it's really cartoony, his anatomy is off, but it's never unsettling. It does give the story a stylized look, which was at that time very different from most of Marvel's books at the time, and very different from Daredevil's previous series in a lot of respects. That's not to say Daredevil didn't have stylized periods or stylized issues. This is a different, I hate to say more modern type of style, but I would also, I would, I would say more progressive type of style. That's probably the best way to put it. It was very different. Not quite indie feeling, not quite image, but not far off. Now, while this is a very quiet scene, very understated, and probably to lessen the impact of what's happening on the page, or at least around what's happening on the page, we immediately go to a fast and boisterous scene, a chase. Now, we meet Gwyneth for the first time, and Gwyneth thinks to herself, you know, maybe she should have probably not skipped gym class because she's running from these men. Now, here, unlike the previous scene, we have a mishmash of panels moving chaotically across the page. And it took me a moment to get used to it, which is perfect, because even though I don't necessarily think it's visually striking, it works here because we are looking at a chaotic scene, a very confusing scene. We're being dropped right in the middle of it. And not only is this young girl being chased, she's remembering that these men who are chasing her beheaded her mother and killed her father. Are you getting the idea that Marvel Knights was going to be edgier? It wasn't quite jumping from like network television to HBO, but more network television to some of the premium cable channels where they can do a little bit more. So while that's being established, Matt is also at confessional. Matt Murdock is a Catholic, and this was an angle that was introduced with Frank Miller's Born Again, and it kind of stuck. Matt is here talking about his crisis of faith, his lack of faith, his wondering if God is even out there, while the priest begins to answer him and give him ideas and try to speak to that. However, Matt's not listening because he's hearing Gwyneth. And I think this is a great bit of symbolism on Smith's part because it's symbolic. Matt's not seeing the forest for the trees. And it's a theme that Smith remains consistent with throughout the story. Matt's seeking something. The answer he might be seeking is right in front of him, but he's looking the other direction, almost like he's being misdirected. So it is almost eight pages into the story when Daredevil finally shows up in his full costume. And not only that, he shows up in the daylight. For such a dark story, and really where Daredevil was at this time, a dark hero, I love that he comes flying out in a bright, sunny day. Especially from the darkness of the confessional. Again, even though this is kind of a slow burn, eight pages in and Daredevil's just showing up, we're jolted around enough that our attention is immediately kept all the way through. So it's actually a skillfully done set of sequences. Kazada's Daredevil is very lean. He's very stylized in terms of anatomy, very sharp angles, not quite animated looking, but definitely not realistically proportioned. And of course, as he's jumping out, doves are flying off like a John Woo movie, but this also serves as kind of a symbolic framework. Daredevil's once again not seeing the forest for the trees, and yes, I know I'm saying seeing, that's intentional. Daredevil's a character of perception, touch, scent, hearing, taste, perception. And the fact that he's not perceiving the things that are right in front of him is definitely a big theme. So Daredevil rushes in, he does the rescue, and it really bothers me that he puts his hand through the windshield. Because I can't see Daredevil being able to do that. Now, it's explained that Daredevil's costume is a micro-mesh steel fiber. Which is fine. That would cushion the blow. However, there's momentum there. He's running his fist through a windshield. So it's still very possible that he would snap his wrist, he just wouldn't bruise his knuckles. However, who am I to dissuade from a fairly good action scene? Which, of course, ends with Daredevil standing there in the middle of the street, having damaged a fire hydrant as the police want answers, and he has no victim. 
basically Daredevil's been put in a position of that person who pretends they have a girlfriend and has to explain, no, no, she's real. She's real. It's not a good place for a superhero to be. So, so far, we've had a great opening salvo that has slow moments, horrifying moments, and then speeds our pulse rate right back up in order to drop it in this next spot. So we're going to continue with the story, and the next leg begins with Matt sitting in his office at the law firm of Sharp, Nelson and Murdoch, contemplating calling his old flame the Black Widow when his law partner Franklin Foggy Nelson comes in. Foggy introduces Matt to Lydia McKenzie, a client in the middle of a multi-million dollar divorce. While McKenzie makes chit-chat about some of Matt's old cases, Matt finds himself distracted by the sound of a familiar heartbeat. Matt rushes out of the office to find the girl, but she is once again nowhere to be seen, or should I say heard. Elsewhere, the goons that Daredevil busted up earlier report to their boss in a high-rise office building, and their boss is not pleased with their ineptitude. As the goons leave via the elevator, they find that it's filling with water and quickly becomes a watery tomb, which is the price of inept crime. Later that night, Daredevil resumes the search for the young girl as he thinks about God and Karen Page. Daredevil stumbles onto an attempted rape and he quickly beats up the perpetrator, thinking how it must feel for the Almighty to see us at our worst. If the Almighty even exists. I'm going to stop again here. I will comment on the Sharp, Nelson, and Murdoch. Their law firm was actually co-opted into Rosalind Sharp's firm. Without getting too far into the continuity, Sharp is Foggy's estranged biological mother. I believe we all know who the Black Widow is from the Avengers and Captain America. But did you know Matt and the Black Widow used to be an item? For quite a long time, she actually shared the title of his book. They shacked up and moved to San Francisco. No, I can't make this up. So, it basically states that Karen left six months ago, which I think softens the blow a little bit too much for Matt. He's had six months to process this. He's had six months since Karen left to get over it. And even if not get over it, then at least learn to cope with it. And yet, here we have Matt thinking about calling Black Widow, and he's feeling guilty about it. He's feeling guilty at six months later. Matt, here's a little advice, buddy. If it's six months and she hasn't come back, you're free to make that booty call. And then luckily that booty call gets canceled because Foggy walks into the office with Lydia. Matt senses that Matt's not Lydia's type. There's no attraction there based on her heartbeat, but Foggy is. Also, Lydia mentions the case where Matt had to defend Mr. Hyde. Mr. Hyde was a great villain who was actually innocent of that particular crime. So Matt ended up having to defend one of his villains because in that case... Mr. Hyde was innocent. That's a good story that I'm going to cover somewhere down the line, but definitely earmark that. So as they're talking, something happens that I have to call foul on. See, they're talking in a high-rise building, on a very high floor of that high-rise building. And this is a very fortified building. Engineering-wise, windows at that stage would have to be certain thickness, withstand certain strong winds and strong pressures. Which means Matt's senses wouldn't reach to the ground floor. They would barely reach outside the building, no matter how strong they are. He would still not be able to get Gwyneth on the ground floor. The only way he would be able to pick her up would be if she was in the building. At that, probably on at least five floors either way, up or down. So Matt could not have really picked that up. It requires too much focus for one thing, and then there's too many barriers there. And to add to that, it doesn't really move the story along for him to run out and chase her again. So this scene, while not bad... It still goes to nothing more than the theme that we're seeing. Matt not seeing the forest for the trees, because Lydia's into Foggy. Lydia knows a lot about Matt. That should have been a red flag, don't you think? And remember those goons that were driving the car that ran into the fire hydrant? Oh, look, they got released. Because, well, victim disappeared. No one to press charges. Which, they get their comeuppance. They get an elevator that turns into an aquarium, which is probably one of my worst nightmares ever. So I'm moving on from that. 
We move into this page that's a stunning sequence. Matt moving through the night. And I love when the colorist makes Matt's costume primarily black at night, with the red parts standing out, such as his logo, his boots, his gloves, his belt. It could be overdone, but it's not done here. This is stunning. However, Kazada does for Daredevil's Billy Club what Todd McFarlane did for Spider-Man's webline. We stop making logical sense of it, because it is a tool. It's something Daredevil uses to swing from point A to point B. But we stop making that logic leap and just make it something that's purdy. And I'm looking at this, and while the art is great, if you were to remove the captions where Daredevil's contemplating his faith and Karen, this is one of the most generic Daredevil scenes I've ever seen. Flip that coin over, though, with the captions, we enter Matt's mind, and it's filled with doubt. The thing I've said previously on this show about Matt Murdock, and one of the most important aspects, is Matt is a passionate man, and a compassionate man. He's a man who relies on his faith. And once that faith is shattered, it's like kryptonite to Superman. Now, for those of you who want to point out that Matt's not what you would call a devout Catholic, I'm not necessarily talking about just religious faith. Sure, here it works as a good extension. Matt has to have faith in certain aspects, certain pillars of his life. First of all, being Jack Murdoch. His father, who was unfortunately killed by gangsters, Matt, puts Jack Murdoch on a pedestal. And we've learned Jack was probably not the greatest person on earth, definitely not the worst, but he had a love for his son and his son loved him. And I've spoken in previous episodes about Matt whitewashing that, that Matt just washes out the stuff that would damage that faith. The other thing Matt has faith in is the legal system. Justice. True justice. Not revenge, but justice. Even though Matt has been tempted to cross the line on many occasions, his faith in that system, his faith in true justice, keeps him going and keeps him restrained, keeps him walking the narrow line of good and evil. And of course, Matt has to have faith in his own abilities. Well, right now, that's being tested. He hears Gwyneth, he rushes out to find her, she's gone. She's able to sneak away while he's saving her. It's starting to chip away at that armor. And you know, another thing Matt has to have faith in to work is his neighborhood, and really, it's his faith in his fellow human being. That for as many Mr. Hydes that are out there, for many kingpins, there are good people worth protecting and people who will have your back. The basic promise of humanity is where Matt finds most of his faith, because all of that falls under the other pillars. Faith in humanity means faith in Jack Murdoch and the potential. Faith in the legal system once again puts faith in people and humanity, and of course himself and his abilities that he relies on. Being able to seek out the good people and the bad people and really sort them out. So, when I speak of Matt's faith being challenged, with Karen leaving, that damages that faith in humanity. Damages his faith in justice, because where's the justice in Karen leaving him? And it really messes with his idea of his own abilities as a human, not just as a superhero, but his own abilities to show the compassion to Karen, to show that he loves her. So, Daredevil's armor is cracked, and all of that is manifesting itself in his religious doubts. So, what we're seeing here with that generic scene, with the captions on is him going through the motions. This is a casual fight with a rapist. Not even that, it's a, just a casual beatdown of a rapist. As I mentioned, without the captions, same old, same old, with the captions, the superhero's there, but nobody's home. He just walks away like it's no big deal. That's where Matt Murdock is right now, mentally at his lowest. Now, his life's not crashing down around him, not this time, but in the past, he's fought through that, and Matt is starting to run out of that fight. And the thing is, though, even though I mentioned the six months have passed and Matt's free to do the booty call with the Black Widow, this isn't just a breakup. This isn't just somebody leaving him. This is Karen Page. This is somebody who's been his cornerstone for years. Even after she betrayed him in a big, big way, he needed her. 
He embraced her. He forgave her. She is the yin to Foggy's yang. The two things balancing the justice scale for Matt. Once you take Karen off of that, things start going the other direction. So Matt's basically in the middle of this seesaw. And it's imbalanced right now. He doesn't have the connection he needs to humanity. And Smith manages to package this in really two pages. That's a lot of depth for two pages. So how much did Smith pack into the rest of the story? Let's jump into the final leg. We'll talk more about Daredevil number one. In the early morning hours, Gwyneth sleeps in an alley with her baby in her arms, and she is awakened by a bright light. Gwyneth sees a cadre of shimmering angels surrounding her and simply says thank you before laying back down to sleep. Another morning comes and Matt is in his office talking with Foggy about Lydia McKenzie's case. Foggy reveals that McKenzie's husband had her sterilized without her knowledge and that Foggy has strong feelings for Lydia despite being married to Liz Allen. As they talk, Matt catches the sound of Gwyneth's heartbeat again and bounds out of the offices to search for her. And he doesn't have to bound far because Gwyneth and her baby are in the lobby. Matt shuffles Foggy out the door and brings Gwyneth into his office to talk. Gwyneth reveals that she was a virgin when she became impregnated, and she knows Matt is Daredevil. She received a message from God that Matt would protect her baby because her baby is the second coming of Christ. Before Matt can wrap his head around all of these rapid-fire revelations, Gwyneth leaves and Matt is still holding the baby. And the issue wraps up with a very puzzled and overwhelmed Matt standing in his lobby with a child that may be the second coming, right in his arms. And so the issue ends. So the weird factor jumped up a bit, don't you think? Now we think of Daredevil as street level, Batman style, which isn't entirely accurate because he's delved into sci-fi and supernatural, several other genres. Yet we have these angels. We have a potential second coming. This is a heck of a twist for the third act of the book. And the thing is, we still don't know anything about Gwyneth. I can fill you in on one thing. Her name, Gwyneth, the name meaning means happiness, blessed in the color white. And of course, white reminds us of clean, virginal. So it's another nice piece of symbolism on Smith's part. Again, we have the recurring theme of the story. Matt is once again not seeing the forest for the trees. Here we have Foggy admitting having a strong infatuation with Lydia. Matt's not heeding the warning, though. The red flag's not going up even though it really, really should. Matt and Foggy have been friends since they were young men in college, freshman year, so both 18-year-olds. Matt would know, just like the reader knows, that Foggy may be prone to wacky fits, but he's not one to pursue infidelity. Matt's got warning signs everywhere. He's not seeing what's right in front of him. And just for added effect, let me say he's not perceiving what's right in front of him. Because I want to make sure I underscore that correctly. On the other side of the same coin, Matt's obsessed with Gwyneth. Why? Why? Because she disappeared at a crime scene? It's odd. It's like somebody's manipulating Matt. Huh? The thing is, as we get into the last few pages, Matt gets a lot thrown at him. And by proxy, the reader... Smith has spent a long time in Matt's head in this issue. He spent most of this issue setting up the current mindset and the reasons for that mindset, which is responsible. And suddenly he realizes we need to hook the reader into the story. We know where Matt is, but now it's time to take Matt down the road that the story has provided. So, virginal birth, potential second coming, and Gwyneth knows that Matt is Daredevil. Bear in mind, this is only a sequence of about three pages where all of this is thrown right on the plate and then the issue is over. It's kind of like punching somebody as you're walking out the door. They have no way to really respond. They just know what just happened. They don't know why. It's a real great way to mess with somebody's mind. And by that, I mean the storytelling not proposing anybody should punch anybody else. And the thing is, these are also really controversial ideas. Forced sterilization. That's pretty heavy. Contrast that against virginal birth. The symbolism's not unintentional. 
Smith had released his film Dogma not too far in advance of this issue, and it used a lot of the themes we're seeing here, virginal birth, etc. Basically, here we add a superhero instead of Jay and Silent Bob. The thing is, are these things that are fertile? Yes. Are they from Smith's Catholic upbringing? Of course. But Dogma had caused a lot of controversy because of tackling this material, and I wonder if Smith was really just mining that, or if he was poking the bear. Either way, we're left with a very effective cliffhanger that makes us immediately want to go to the second issue, and a great way to close out the issue with a great image of Matt, the baby in hand, standing in the lobby with his shadow forming Daredevil. And the thing is, I have to pay a huge compliment to Kevin Smith, because he picks up on what worked for Frank Miller without directly trying to copy it. What worked for Miller was the innovation, the fresh directions, and a focus on Matt versus Daredevil, the man in the costume, not the superhero. So let me move into my final verdict here. Smith, I haven't talked about a lot, and I wanted to avoid it to some extent, because I want the content itself to stand up. Kevin Smith is known for having a foul mouth, really lewd humor, yet this issue, and I'd also put his run on Green Arrow, available as the trade paperback Green Arrow Quiver, I would put this on the table just to show how capable Smith can be when he wants to be. With this, he never rests on his crutch. He never turns to Jay and Silent Bob. He never decides to mention Caitlin Bree or the number 37. He just tells a straightforward Daredevil story with a really good hook. And the thing is, Smith didn't know the mechanics of writing comics at that time. He didn't know how to write a script, which slowed him down for a little bit, but Kazada said, let us handle that. So all of that to say this, I'm not a Smith apologist. There are things he's done that frustrate me, but I think he has far more potential than he's given credit for, and I wish he would pursue storytelling like this rather than another Jay and Silent Bob movie or Tusk, because I think he could be extremely amazing. This issue is a bit of a conundrum because it doesn't grab you from page one. It's not an immediate yank into the story. It's a slow burn, but by the last page, Again, we're ready for issue two. We're on board. You have my attention. Now, the relaunch feels geared more to lapsed readers than a whole new generation, which would be pretty appropriate for that time frame. The the large chain bookstore market, where most of the general public has started getting their comic book trade paperbacks, didn't exist at this point. Not in the full capacity it does now. So comics had to reach out to the existing audience, the existing infrastructure of the comic book shop, readers of Wizard. So this feels intermediate. It's not necessarily the greatest entry point, but it's great for lapsed readers, especially with Kazada's stylized art style. Now, Pelmiati compliments Kazada perfectly, but the visual shot in the arm that the book needed is here. And that stylized art definitely tells me it was not geared for Joe Blow walking through the aisles of Borders in 1998. So the main question is, since this is Daredevil 101, we're looking for launching points. Is this a good jumping on point? Again, this is more of an intermediate level. What I'd recommend with this book is start with Man Without Fear. It's a good natural precursor, but move on to this. Because this is a great starting point for a long haul. Somebody who's going to be reading for a while. This series, the second volume, goes on for quite a while. It leads to the Brian Michael Bendis run, the Brubaker runs. All of this is available in fairly inexpensive trade form. So this is, this is when you've decided to really commit and follow through. This is the series I would start with. If you're only going to be kind of dabbling your toe in just because you're interested... I would move on to next week's issue. And one final note, I cannot believe this is 17 years old. It feels contemporary. It blows my ever-loving mind that that much time has passed. And yet, here I am, getting excited about it all over again. That should tell you something on the quality of this issue and the storyline, which I will eventually be looping back around to cover the storyline in a few years. 
so hopefully I'll make a few longtime listeners who will be around to remember me doing this episode 50. And speaking of longtime listeners, now I would like to segue to the segment of the show where I read email and correspondence, beginning with another email from Ben Avery. This email has the subject line, Toy Biz Daredevil, and Ben writes, I can't believe I'm sending an email about this, but... Counterpoint to your rant in episode 18 or 19 about Daredevil toys not featuring the Billy Club and giving him a grappling hook cannon. The Toy Biz Daredevil action figure did feature the Billy Club. It's right there, on his leg, in the mold, right? Right? The grappling hook cannon was just a bonus. Side note, here's the connective tissue between us. Both of us have favorite characters who came packaged with obnoxious and unnecessarily grappling hook cannons. For me, it was the Ultraverse's Nightman. Then again, that's a connection that really any comic book fan can say they share. Spider-Man has webs, but grappling hook cannon. Green Lantern has a ring, but grappling hook cannon. Granted, they can make it green and say it's a ring construct. Superman can fly, but grappling hook cannon. I need to stop there. No more emails till I catch up. That's probably a lie. No, let's call it a lawyer trick. Godspeed, Ben. And Ben, let me ask you this. What good is a billy club if you can't whack a villain with it? It's, it's shameful. You need to know, for that matter, in terms of life... What good are life's problems if you can't whack them with a billy club? Now, to give you a serious answer to, to a relatively serious rant, most toys, especially in the 90s, 80s, they were designed by focus groups. That's why we had secret wars, because what the hell is a secret war? They're two words that focus groups decided kids liked. So we got a randomly named secret war. Superpowers at least had a function. Characters had superpowers. Squeeze the leg, they punch, what have you. So the grappling hook cannon is basically coming from that mentality that kids like things that shoot. Grappling hooks are cool because they can climb. Speed ahead to today, where really you have an adult collector market. In fact, a lot of toys are actually marked adult collector, which is just awkward. Just on that note, I always feel a little dirty buying anything marked adult collector. Like, I should be looking around making sure nobody I know is there just in case they talk. But with that market now recognized and really catered to more than ever... We are seeing things like Daredevil with a proper billy club. Still doesn't explain why Superman is pretty persistently packaged with kryptonite, but it is what it is. But I appreciate that email, Ben, and definitely want to go back and check out my Toy Biz Daredevil again. The next email is from Mr. Kyle Benning. His subject line is Dave's Daredevil Podcast Does It Again. Kyle writes, J. David, last year your podcast became my go-to audio entertainment for shoveling my driveway whenever we were plagued with a new layer of snow here in northeast Iowa. And lo and behold, I wake up Sunday, January 4th to find not only an awesome new episode of Dave's Daredevil podcast, but also the first big snow drifts of 2015. It was clearly destiny. I'm so glad you've returned and I look forward to your coverage of The Man Without Fear in 2015. I hope the break left you refreshed and reinvigorated for new episodes. I'm certainly grateful for new episodes of the podcast with the snappiest episode theme song there is. Glad to have you back. Sincerely, your fellow Legion blogger and host of the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun podcast, Kyle Benning. Well, I'm glad to be back. I'm sorry you had to shovel the snow. Hopefully I kept you good company while doing that. Luckily this year we've dodged a lot of the snow in the winter here in Missouri, so I take solace in that. I also take solace that you appreciate it coming back. And yes, I did come back reinvigorated and refreshed, which should be the title of my autobiography, which is sure to bore hundreds of people to sleep. I appreciate you dropping in. I appreciate you listening. Thank you, Kyle. The next email is from the Irredeemable Shag. This was also shared on Facebook. Subject line was The Listener with No Fear, Episode 38, or Daredevil 180. Shag writes, Welcome back. So excited to see the return of Dave's Daredevil podcast. The show's absence left a hornhead shaped hole in my heart. With the show's return, I feel complete once again. 
Just a few quick thoughts on issue number 180, episode 38. Listening to your commentary brought me to some speculation. Consider the following. 1. We did not see the resolution of the cliffhanger. 2. Subplots were wrapped up, such as Candidate Cherry. And 3. You mentioned some of the art wasn't as tight as usual. Is it possible this issue was rushed or perhaps different than originally envisioned? Perhaps Frank decided to wrap up the Electra story quicker than originally plotted, thus this issue needed to move faster. What was Frank's exit strategy for the Daredevil title? Did he always plan to hang around until issue 191, or did he want to leave earlier? Just points to ponder. Keep up the great work. Glad to have you back. The Irredeemable Shag, host of, get ready for the list, the Fire and Water podcast, Who's Who the Definitive Podcast of the DC Universe, Ultraverse Network, Who True Freaks, part of the Two True Freaks Network, and FirestormFan.com, as well as generally hanging around convenience store parking lots on Saturday nights. Which Shag does completely and totally by choice, by the way. By choice. And I will say, Shag, you've got a really great point there. Very valid. Miller may have been more excited by the prospect of the doing the storyline, killing Elektra off and wrapping that up, and decided to let his ADD kick in and just move to that a little bit quicker. So he wanted to wrap up the cherry arc because he saw the potential in that story. Or, knowing Shooter, who was the editor-in-chief at that time, Jim Shooter always had a, I'll be nice and say hands-on, editorial style. Shooter may have said, let's move on from this cherry stuff and get into that story. And I don't know how early Miller wanted to leave. I know Miller was wanting to do Ronin, so I don't think he had a solid exit strategy. But at the same time, I think he did hit the high point of his story. He left on his own terms, which of course we're going to cover way down the road, but he left at the right time to go do Ronin. But I don't think at this stage, he knew quite when he was leaving. He didn't have one foot out the door just yet. I will say that. So very excellent, and thank you, Shag, and all of the podcasts I mentioned, especially the Fire and Water podcast, you should definitely be listening to. And the final email for this week is from Mr. Jeff Gibson, subject line, Welcome Back. Seems to be a theme. Jeff writes, Dave, I would like to welcome you back to the airwaves inside my Jeep every Monday morning. I miss the podcast very much, but I also realize you have a life outside of what I listen to in the car, so I really do want to thank you for taking the time to create more of them. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on the different issues, especially 181 and Born Again, the upcoming Netflix show, and anything else concerning Hornhead. Thanks again, Jeff. And Jeff, I'll say this to you, and I'll echo it to everybody who's welcomed me back. It's a privilege to be coming into your ears, which sounds really awkward. Whether you're listening to me through earbuds or as Jeff does in his car, it's always an honor that you took the time to download and listen to episodes for the last 50-some-odd episodes. Having said that, I've got a comment on the fact that I've reached episode 50. Again, that's a milestone. And I look back on where the show really began, which would have been around August of 2013. The show began with me taking drives, and for several weeks I just thought about nothing but Daredevil and what makes the character tick, what makes him such a rich, great character, and why I love the character. And slowly as I began thinking more and more, it became more relevant to me to make a podcast about it. There wasn't really any out there at the time. None that would cover it the way I would, at least. And it seemed like a natural thing for me to do, having a history in podcasting itself. But I remember the moment it happened would have been late, late August of 2013. Now, my drives are late at night. I work second shift. At this time, I was getting off around midnight, I believe. And I could tell you the exact location was at a stoplight here in my local town. The moment the idea went from something I could do, might do, perhaps should do, to something I'm going to do, and here's pretty much how I'm going to do it. And I remember sitting at that as the rain started to pick up. It was just a light rain. The droplets are forming on my car windshield. I'm looking at the stoplight. And I said to myself, Dave, if you're going to do this, go all in. Don't half-ass it. See it through. And there was a time there when I didn't think it was going to be seen through. There was a hiatus in the show. 
But here I am, episode 50, an episode I didn't think I was going to reach for a while. And from the vantage point of sitting in that car back in August of 13, the idea of reaching 50 seemed unattainable, far away. But the weird thing is, this show still seems new to me. It doesn't feel like I've put 50 episodes under my belt, which is a good sign for how much I enjoy doing the show and how much I enjoy the listeners and the interactions I have with you. Thank you for 50 great episodes. Here's to the next 150 to 170, somewhere in there. And just as a note, if you're listening in the car, you're kind of my target audience. I typically do my proof listens in my car. So my elaborate sound scheme <clears throat> is designed for vehicles. But back to my point, to Jeff and everybody, the support for this show since the beginning has been overwhelming. I mentioned sitting at that stoplight and the moment it went from an idea to let's move on this. And I had no idea what, if any, audience I would bring in. And it was kind of terrifying because it wasn't necessarily piggybacking off of anything I'd done before. So it was scary. Likewise, it was scary when I was deciding to come back from hiatus, working on the show for about, I think it was about 12 weeks before the first episode came out, maybe a little bit further, because I, I maintain a pretty good 10-week lead. At that time, I had no idea how much of the audience would return. And I was scared that, you know, I'd really burn that bridge. But download numbers have been solid, actually higher than before the break. The feedback has been fantastically positive. So with my 50th episode coming to an end, I just want to say once again, thank you. You'll never know what doing this show and talking with you, either on the social media or through email or what have you, you'll never know what that means to me because I don't think I can ever convey it properly, which is a big weakness. So just know it's appreciated on levels that I'll never be able to say. So thank you once again. Now, before we get all sappy and weepy-eyed, I'm going to wrap up the episode next week. Daredevil 101 continues and we leap ahead from 1998 to 2011 as Mark Wade begins a whole new chapter in the life of the man without fear in yet another Daredevil number one. I will see you in one week. Until then, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show via the RSS link, iTunes, and other podcatchers. Or stream it on the Stitcher app, which gives you instant access to a wide range of audio programs. Email for the show can be submitted to dave at daredevilpodcast.com or through the website's handy contact form. The show is on Facebook. Simply search for Dave's Daredevil Podcast. And I am on Twitter as well. My username is at Dave Weeder. Weeder is spelled W-E-T-E-R. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists solely for entertainment purposes only. I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>